Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is longtime writer for the magazine, Joel Kotkin. Joel is the Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University in Orange County, California. He's the Executive Director of the Houston-based Urban Reform Institute, and he's a contributing editor to City Journal. And as I noted, he writes for us frequently. He's the author of many books, the newest of which has just come out, and we'll talk a bit about that later. It's called The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. Joel, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, first, you know, you've been writing for years for us on your own state of California uh, about its economic and political conditions, and it's been a while uh, since we've talked about California on this podcast, other than um, homelessness, which we have brought up in L.A. and San Francisco. That's been a focus of ours. But uh, your recent piece for us, Kamala's America, describes California as increasingly feudal, and that also uh, is a theme that's picked up in the title of your new book. So um, perhaps you could just start by giving us a breakdown of where, before we talk about Kamala, where you think uh, California is right now, uh, you know, how the pandemic has affected its, uh, its uh, politics and economy, and uh, what do you mean by a feudal uh, backdrop or environment? Well, the first thing is, in terms of the California and the pandemic, even though we've been far from um, the worst hit state, um, the economic impact of the lockdown, how it's been used, um, has been really kind of catastrophic. I think we're have the sixth highest unemployment rate. Um, if you look at by metro regions, uh, the California regions of uh, uh, L.A., uh, San Francisco, uh, Silicon Valley, and um, and the Inland Empire um, have all uh, are all towards the bottom of the metros. The only metros generally doing worse are you know the completely tourist-dependent places like New Orleans, Las Vegas, Orlando, they still have been hit hardest. But but uh, so A, we're not doing particularly well in the pandemic. And what's bizarre is we're ratcheting up our regulatory and tax policies in ways that make it even harder. Like, for instance, we have um, this AB5, where uh, which basically doesn't allow people to work as contractors. I can tell you that when you do business here in California, um, I always prefer to hire somebody from out of state, um, if particularly if it's a larger contract, because I don't want to be assaulted by the state. Well, this person worked for you for $10,000, and therefore you have to pay for their, you know, Social Security and a bunch of other things. I mean, and it's right. much worse. We've editorialized against this several times. Alison Schrager's been writing a lot about just how misguided that measure is and what a what a negative impact it's going to have on California's recovery from from the pandemic. Well, and we've already seen companies like Vox have to lay off large numbers of people. A lot of people are are now doing their production outside of the state in terms of the entertainment industry. Um and of course, uh the tech industry is very dependent on contract labor, so that's an issue as well. Um and um and there's also uh, other measures. There's one to 
in, uh, to allow for the uh, fairly major increase in property prices right in the midst of, of a absolute apocalypse for small business. We're going to raise property taxes and rents on people. Um, and we're um, in this, I've been writing a lot about this recently, and I know uh, Robert Bryce has also written about it, this unbelievable um, decision that we're going to have to go all electric on everything, um, even though in some cases the, the products don't exist and we're cutting back um, our both nuclear and natural gas. So guess what? We have constant um, outages. Um, I mean, it's it's now become, you know, I, I wrote recently, I said that it was just like the swallows come to, to Capistrano in the spring, the fires and power outages come in, come in the summer. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's really tough uh, for for Californians dealing with this, and you know the fires have become a kind of annual occurrence. Um, but these these rolling brownouts, uh, you know, we're, we're in the twenty first century. They shouldn't be happening, uh, especially in a state that prides itself on its technological savvy, and a state that has enormous energy reserves of its own, and you know, um, and and was renowned for its for its energy production, and obviously, you know, one of the great problems we have is that California, um, because the people at the top and the and the power structure, the Greens, the oligarchs, the um, uh, the you know the upper end of the of the bureaucracy, um, you know, they're they're all doing fine, and so to them. Um, you know, this is this is this is not a big problem. What we're losing, of course, are mid-skilled jobs, manufacturing jobs. So upward mobility is being destroyed. So instead of a large, what I would call a yeoman middle class of small property owners, we increasingly have rich people and serfs. And and this is what you're referring to by talking about this this kind of 21st century feudalism that's emerging in California. Right. Um, you know, your most recent piece, as I mentioned at the top, is on the new vice presidential uh, candidate or nominee, I should say, uh, Kamala Harris for the Democratic Party. She is a California senator. Uh, she's someone we've written about uh, a number of times, including a feature essay by uh, Mark Pulliam that we published all the way back in 2016, calling her the next Obama and predicting that she would be uh, you know, a, a very plausible national candidate, so someone to keep an eye on. And you've been her constituent for a long time uh, as a Californian. In your piece, you note her close ties uh, with Silicon Valley and Hollywood, uh, but you also caution readers not to underestimate her. But could you give, you know, our listeners a sense of, of what, you know, what you think Kamala Harris represents in the Democratic Party um, and what she'll bring to the ticket? Well, I think she's really in a very sweet spot because unlike, let's say, a Bernie Sanders or, or even Elizabeth Warren, um, she is not um, uh, somebody who's going to stand up to the tech companies who increasingly dominate our economy as, as other parts of the economy are systematically destroyed. Um, she's also able to cover a good part of the intersectionality quotient. You know, she's, you know, part Asian, part black, 
um, although uh, from the West Indies, not from uh, the, the United States, um, in terms of her parents. But, you know, she, she, you know, and obviously she's a female, so she sort of passes all those intersectional uh, tests that seem to be uh, determinative now in, in progressive politics. Um, and she's, you know, and, but she's very odd in the sense that she's also um, has a history of a kind of ruthless prosecutor. Um, and, well, right, and some, she was attorney general in California. Right. Well, first as, and then as attorney general, she does clearly have an authoritarian streak. You know, I always think that, you know, uh, uh, Donald Trump comes off as a, as a second rate Mussolini, you know, kind of a buffoonish figure, but the real authoritarian uh, wave in America is not going to come out of, you know, Donald Trump. It's going to come in the form that Kamala Harris represents, where if you disagree on certain issues, you get banned or uh, from um, internet platforms. Um, if you if you disagree, for instance, on climate change, you could be sued and even go to jail. Um, you know, I think we're going to see a a, a real authoritarian um, regime, and 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 in terms of of the, the California's insane zoning um, and planning policies. She's been a key enforcer, telling people, no, you have to put everything in high density, has to be on, you know, near transit stops, even though such a tiny percentage of people in California take transit. Um, but this idea of imposing a San Francisco model on the rest of the state, which is insane, given the fact that San Francisco is really kind of unique um, in California for its density, for its transit dependency. And um, and yet the state um, and Harris personally pushed this. And then lastly, I think she ha- she she's pretty well known as being a very sort of haughty and, and author- authoritarian personality. Um, I mean, that's what I've heard from, you know, people who've worked with her. So, um, but she's very, very smart. Um, she has a good sense of, you know, what to do when. And um, and she obviously has the political skills since she basically called Joe Biden a racist and then became his vice presidential candidate. That that shows a certain amount of skill. True. Um, well, it, it certainly um, we're going to see and it'll be, be fascinating uh, over the next few months to, you know, discover what kind of uh, uh, an impact she's going to have on the campaign and on the Biden uh, chances uh, to win the presidency. Um, you know, to get back to this this question of uh, neo-feudalism, uh, this is the title of your new book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. It's published by Encounter, and we'll link to it in the description of this podcast. I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about it. You, you talk in this, or you, you refer in the subtitle to it being a warning to the global middle class. Uh, which you see as being replaced by a kind of California-type model of a hierarchical economy, uh, a kind of new class structure. Uh, could you talk a bit about how that is manifesting itself globally? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, certainly in California, but but are we seeing this in, in other countries as well? Oh, yeah. The, that was one of the most interesting parts of doing the research is almost every country, even countries that we think of as egalitarian, like Japan or uh, or Denmark or Sweden or Finland, 
are showing the same characteristics that maybe not quite as extreme. Um, they don't have, uh, Sweden has some, but they don't have the poverty populations that we have. But the UK certainly, um, if anything, is even more feudal than the United States because, um, you know, basically there's not much economy outside of London. Um, so that, you know, the competition is pretty extreme. Um, and what you have is you have a, uh, a sort of um, desire, I think, in almost all these countries um, to sort of um, favor policies, particularly on the environment, that make it almost impossible for manufacturing businesses, logistical businesses to compete um, uh, on a global level against countries that don't have these regulations. Um, and you also have a, you know, what you really have is we've created this large um, class of, of people that I call the clerisy, who are at the universities, in the media, at the nonprofits, and they're fundamentally not directly affected by, by the market economy. What, what do you mean by that? Otherwise, okay, if, if you're teaching at the University of California, it's going to be a long time and it would take a really long recession for you to be hit. The adjuncts may be hit. Um, the students may be hit. But you're pretty insulated. I mean, we're talking about people. Um, a friend of mine was talking in the, uh, his neighbors, two retired um, prof- uh, uh, associate deans from UCLA, and they get about, between the two of them, like $300,000, $350,000 a year in pension. I mean, nobody has that. Um, so what do they care if the economy is falling apart? They're they're kind of guaranteed. And in some cases, parts of the clerisy actually benefit because they actually get more power and then, then we need more of them. Um, so I think that the, fundamentally what we're – and this is happening in some cases even more so in Europe. And then I, I just want to mention Japan, uh, China, which has had a great growth of its middle class um, in the last 20 years. But that seems to have stalled, and there's an enormous poverty population um, that isn't going anywhere and really has very little chance of upward mobility. So this really is a global phenomena. It's driven by things like technology, the environmental movement, um, uh, and, and, and frankly, you know, neoliberalism, if you want to put it that way. Um, and it's pretty much felt almost every, certainly almost every advanced country, and the middle class, um, the OECD even wrote a whole report, is really on retreat uh, virtually everywhere in the world. Well, this this poses uh, real problems for democracy, which usually, you know, historically has required strong middle class. Um, what, you know, what kind of steps can be taken to uh, to break apart this neo-feudalism and, and restore some kind of... Uh, more variegated economy where where middle class uh, opportunity is available for people who aren't part of the clerisy. Well, I would say there there are, you know the, you know first of all you know on the first point that you made, which I think is clear, is uh, Barrington Moore made the great comment: "No bourgeois, no democracy." I mean, once you begin to lose an independent um, middle class of small property owners, and I think the founding fathers understood this well, and so did Lincoln. You know, you just can't, and Roosevelt as well. You can't have a democracy where the where the vast majority of people essentially have no stake in the game. Um, you know, and are basically just looking um, for um, 
for the opportunity to get money out of the government. So what can we do? One, we can we can get rid of some of these uh, the the zoning and and planning policies in most in, in many countries, including the U.S., Canada, Australia, um, and and the U.K., which have all driven up the price of property, so people can't get into the property market. Then you have to start saying it's on energy, instead of making energy incredibly expensive, which really destroys the opportunity for. Uh, for job creation and particularly middle class job creation, maybe we should think about natural gas or nuclear power um, instead of relying on what is clearly expensive and unreliable fuel. And the third part, which I think maybe some conservatives don't like, but I'm not a conservative, so I'll say it anyway, um, antitrust enforcement. We have allowed these tech companies to literally go and consolidate um virtually their entire niches. I mean, we have companies now with 80, 90% market share in critical niches. Um, I don't think that would have been allowed 20, 30 years ago, but it's being allowed now. Um, So you have a small group of companies who not only control the pipelines, but increasingly control content. I mean, I'm very concerned that tech oligarchs um, are in control of the Washington Post, the New Republic, the Atlantic, um, and, um, um, at, at time magazine, um, I mean, the, the ability of these people to not only control the pipeline, but what goes into it, you absolutely have to break up this, this, uh, this group who now are, um, to show you how large they've become. Apple is now worth by some estimates more than the entire American energy industry. Um, Musk is worth more than virtually all the car companies put together, the um, Tesla. Um, I mean, you have a concentration of wealth that historically progressives would have opposed, but now are enabling and are now being funded by. So what we this power has to be broken because if we don't break this power, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, and and, and the other oligarchs will dominate our future in the media, at the university level, and and politically through contributions, and sometimes most effectively through nonprofit organizations that they fund. Well, we do, we do see growing concern uh, among some conservatives anyway about the, the control over information um, and censorship uh, that has uh, been going on you know, via Google or, or YouTube. Um, I, I, I think there's at least a, an awareness that there is a potential problem there and that uh, these platforms um, have started to act more as, uh, you know, editorial entities rather than neutral um, platforms. And, and that raises a lot of questions about their civic responsibility and, and free speech so I, I think that is a debate you're going to be seeing more of. And, uh, you know, there, there is some sympathy uh, for at least looking into antitrust uh, questions uh, from people like Luigi Zingales and others who are, you know, broadly on the right in some sense. So I, I do think we're going to see more of that um, going forward. I certainly hope so. And, and look, there are many people who are Democrats or former Democrats like me who feel the same way and feel that that um, that what 
and and you know in in this area this is one area where you know Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were much more likely to as they say speak truth to power than Joe Biden or or Kamala Harris what is the um you know the intent of the book i guess is just to to open up some of these questions um what what's been the reception so far it's been very interesting um it's being released during the pandemic. Have have you been getting some attention for it? Yeah, I um very nice attention. Um National Review gave it a very good review. Oddly enough, probably more attention on the right than the left, and more attention in Europe than in the US. Um the Times of London did a big piece about it. Uh Figaro had a full page interview with me. Um I think partially because Europeans maybe because Feudalism is not an, an, an abstraction to them; they kind of get it. Mm-hmm. Um, the the two groups that have you know, and then I have some nice comments coming from the more traditional left in this country. The two groups that don't want to hear it are the gentry left, because obviously the book is about them in many ways, um, and some libertarians who you know can't get it through their brains that the people that they are so interested in supporting are people who would like to put them in the digital gulag. Um, and and also that you can't have a functioning democratic capitalist system if only a small group of people uh, control the vast majority of resources. It just doesn't work. Um, you could have something like, like China, uh, Russia. Um, you can have some sort of oligarchic regime, which is I think where we're headed. Um, but uh, I think libertarians in many cases are being very short-sighted and they don't recognize the sociological basis of conservatism and libertarianism, which is based on the small property owning class. If the way to upward mobility is to go through the bureaucracies and and the credential ga- gaining, uh, granting institutions, uh, um, I don't see where there's going to be any constituency for for a politics that's that's um that's based on on property rights and rule of law um and and competition. I mean, I find myself all the time you know I started covering Silicon Valley in the 80s. The incredible rate of improvement. Every year somebody was coming out with something that was better than the guy before. I'd like to ask uh, our listeners do you think Microsoft works any better than it did 20 years ago, 10 years ago? Is Google search any better than it was five years ago? The the, the lack of real progress in technology um, is really quite marked. It's actually interesting contrast from the progress that's made in, in fields where there's much more competition, you know, whether it's in in the in food or or in markets. I mean, when you have a market that's 80, 90% controlled by one company, there's no incentive for them to improve their product. It's just how do they further monetize it? Well, thanks, Joel. Um, Very, very provocative and interesting comments and uh, look forward to uh, talking with you again. Don't forget to check out uh, Joel Cockin's work at City Journal. He's been writing for us for many years. His latest piece is called Kamala's America. You can find it on our website, www.city-journal.org, and we'll link to it in the description. 
You can also follow him on Twitter, at Joel Cocken. And uh, he uh, has a website called newgeography.com, where his work is also posted. Or you can visit the Urban Reform Institute's website to learn more about his work. Make sure you follow City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a ratings a rating on iTunes. Uh, thanks for listening, and thanks again, Joel, for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.